Good afternoon. Well, let's just jump straight into it. Uh, if I'll have, I'll have you turn over to Psalm 131, Psalm 131 in your Bible as we get started here. It's a fascinating little psalm to me. It's, it's one that actually became really important to me during the COVID year in particular. Uh, I felt like I kind of discovered it then. Obviously, I'd read it my whole life, but it took on a new meaning for me then. Psalm 131. I'll just read it. It's very short. It's only 33 words long in the original language. It says, a song of ascents of David. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty, nor do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. It's really just a beautiful piece of poetry in its own right. It's noteworthy to me how it feels so personal. You feel like it's just you talking to God all the way up until the last verse when suddenly it's like the speaker turns around and there's all Israel. And we're going we're gonna to talk to all Israel and say, hey, what, what I've just communicated here, this is what we all need to be doing. I timed it. It takes me about 27 seconds each time to read it. So I like to think of this psalm as 27 seconds to calm, quiet hope. At first glance, it's a psalm that can feel just sort of disconnected in time and space. It's something that almost could have been written by anybody, anywhere, following God at any time in history. But of course, it it does have a context. The very top, it says, a song of a sense of David. And we know a lot about David, more than just about anybody else in the Bible. And there's a lot of times in his life we could look at and sort of plug this in and think, well, maybe he was thinking of this at this moment in his life. A lot of scholars have looked at Psalm 131 and they've noticed this line, surely I have calmed and quieted my soul. And they have mentioned that it seems here to be pointing to some kind of distress. There's some kind of distress that has uh, led up to the writing of this psalm. And that David writing it is he's not a stoic, he's not just calm all the time, but that becoming calm was a process. He, he had to calm himself, he had to get calm. And the whole psalm flows so well that it can sometimes, I think, be easy to miss how verses 1 and 2 are, are saying kind of different things, that, and they kind of bring together different concepts and, and link them together. The beginning in verse 1, I think we'd look at it and say maybe it's talking about pride. It seems like it's related to pride or uh, unbridled ambition or you know, wanting to be the heavyweight, wanting to, to make the big decisions, be involved in the big things. Uh, or have control over things, but uh, verse 2 then follows, surely I've calmed and quieted my soul, and now it seems like we're talking about overcoming anxiety of some kind or another. So what is the focus? What, what is this psalm about? Is it about pride or is it about anxiety? Well, I think most of us struggle with both these things, probably more than we'd like to admit. And of course, there are some people where anxiety plays a very large part of their lives, an extreme way that may have nothing to do with, with pride or themselves or anything. It, there are those situations, and if you're hearing this, you probably know who you are. If you're one of the high-anxiety people who you know, that has been triggered by things that have happened specifically to you in your life. And that's not what I'm talking about here. This 
pride, though, and this anxiety seem to be linked. This psalm seems to be suggesting that there is a lot of pride and anxiety out there. We all have a baseline pride and a baseline anxiety that we have to deal with sometimes, and that it's somehow intertwined. It has a single source and a single solution. Now, this psalm, it would look great on a refrigerator magnet or on a cup of coffee or something, but it's, it is participating in a larger story. It's Psalm 131 because it comes after 130 and because it comes before 132. And when you go back and you read 130, you see something really similar with that, that it, it starts out personal and it kind of crescendos at a certain point with this line, O Israel, hope in the Lord. And that's the only other time, those two times are the only times you get that phrase in the whole Bible. Uh, exactly like that. So there's, there's a link happening there. And on the other side, in Psalm 132, there's this story about David's seed. We're looking towards what's going to happen with the anointed one from David's line and how God is going to bless an anointed one from David's seed. So you can keep your finger here if you want in Psalm 131. And I'd like to ask you to flip over to Matthew 6 for a moment. Matthew 6. The more times I read the Bible, the more I realize that when we're talking about David, we're seldom just talking about David. He is somebody that God used in a really special way beyond his own lifetime. Of course, he, you know, when for a young person, when you're reading the Bible, it's hard to look past some of the massive mistakes that David made. But when you really just read everything he went through and the way that he approached God, you can see why why God pointed out this person and said, look, everybody, look at this heart compared to... Everybody was a contemporary of his, especially Saul, who preceded him. And he says, there's something happening in this heart, the way that he is trusting me, that this is what I'm looking for right here. So much so that God honors David by making his life, his, his descendants, the context for God sending his own son into the world, for sending his own son into the human story. And so when we come to Matthew 6, it's important to remember that this is a book that starts with the line, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. That's the story Matthew's telling. David continually sets up Jesus things, and Jesus fulfills David things. Now, we're kind of parachuting here into the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, which is over three chapters, and Matthew didn't write the the numbers for the chapters into into his story. Stephen Langton, I think, did that in the 1200s or something like that, but... um, I love where they are in the Sermon on the Mount because I really think you can, you can, when you kind of take it all apart and diagram it and put it back together, there's really three movements, three big movements to the Sermon on the Mount. This is the center one. And I'd like to look at the center of the center here in uh, verse 24 of Matthew 6. Uh, this is right after the part where it's talking about the treasures of earth, treasures on earth versus treasures in heaven. And then he says, in Matthew 6:24, Jesus says, "No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and Mammon, physical wealth, Mammon, the, the stuff that, that you could build up here on earth." And I read this chapter and the Sermon on the Mount for a long time before I realized that everything that's happening in chapter six here, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, in one way or another, Kind of spiderwebs back to this right here. This is the big idea, two masters. You know, our Bible's kind of cramming into these, like yours is probably like mine. It's just all flows like regular text. But if you kind of take it back apart and put in line breaks where ideas reflect each other and you 
highlight words that are connected to each other. The structure kind of just unfolds for you there. And you see there's everything that happens before verse 24 and everything that happens after verse 24 here. One way that I think about it, well, I guess I should ask, how does, where, where did I get here from Psalm 131? What is the relation of this to Psalm 131? And I guess the way I'd like to propose to think about it is, like, if you've ever um, had to fix a washing machine or something, you had to download a part, or I'm sorry, you had to buy the part, but you had to download the manual that would show you where the part was. And they have these things called exploded view diagrams. You might have, you've probably seen them before, where it's like a picture of the inside of your washing machine, then all the parts are like out here exploded in space, so you see where they all connect. I would suggest you could look at Matthew 6 as like the exploded view diagram of Psalm 131 in a lot of ways. It starts with, Matthew 6 starts with three things. It has Jesus talking about how to do three things, how to do charitable deeds, how to pray, and how to fast. And in each one of those cases, he lays out two mindsets for doing it, two directions for doing it. One is where you invest in the Father who sees in secret. And the other one is where you're trying to lift yourself up to be something to be seen by other people and to build your own castle in the sand, your own little empire right here on earth. Those are the two approaches. That's on the one side of verse 24 that we have, the story of the hypocrites. On the other side, we've got the famous discussion about anxiety, the famous consider the lilies section of of scripture that talks about worrying, worrying about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. And if you read that worrying part all by itself, you get the idea that Jesus had something against planning, that, you know, he just didn't like planning very much. Is that the lesson we're supposed to get from that? But you have to zoom out. Again, come back to verse 24 here, the two masters. This is the idea that chapter 6 is circling around. Who or what is your master? Because it goes through the whole section about worrying about what you'll eat or drink or wear. And he gets to the bottom and he says, for after all these things the Gentiles seek. For after all these things the Gentiles seek. And he's not talking about the Gentiles who are just, you know, in the crowd that he's talking to right there. When he engages that kind of language, he's, it's like he's looking out over their heads and we're looking out across the sweep of history. The nations out there that surround Israel. And the story that's being been told ever since Genesis, where you've got the Babylon worldview. That's what the Gentiles represents. The Babylon worldview has always opposed the Eden worldview. It's a worldview that's made up of trusting in ourselves. It's made up, it's the story of mankind, of of humans dominating their way to self-sufficiency and greatness, instead of reigning the world by reflecting God's image and by trusting in God's strength. So that's the thread that runs through Matthew 6. And so there's a connection between the hypocrites at the top of Matthew 6 and the worriers at the bottom of Matthew 6. They're doing the same thing. They have made mammon their master, and they have chosen their kingdom. It's about pride and anxiety. But Jesus is saying, all your behaviors, all your internal struggles that you're having, they're going to come down to which master is the one that you actually trust. He ends by saying, after all these things, the Gentiles, the nations, seek. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I skipped in the middle. He said he concludes by saying, your, your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. All these things, all these things, all these things. It's the conclusion of Psalm 131 that we saw. Oh, Israel, 
hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Psalm 131 is written from a king to royalty, to future royalty. It's not saying to never to aspire to do anything big in your life. It's not saying to not take on the Goliaths out there, because David did. He did take on Goliath. Instead, it's about a mindset that any king or any janitor can bring into any situation in their lives at any time in life. It's very short, Psalm 131. You can memorize it. It's a great prayer to incorporate into daily activities. It's an excellent prayer to stop and pray, to recenter yourself in a place of humility. Before you hit reply on that text thread or that, that Facebook post or something like that, to just stop and remember, this is, this is where I'm supposed to be. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty, nor do I concern myself with great matters or things too profound for me. Whether it's a hidden pride that we have or anxiety that we have as we head into the Passover, we need to be sure that we bring it back to the only real hope that all of us have. And that is in Jesus, the son of David, our Lord, who practiced what he preached. He fulfilled this psalm. He lived out David's psalm perfectly on the night before he was sacrificed. He prayed, it, he prayed in the garden. He said, take this cup away from me. And Luke said, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling on the ground. But he calmed and quieted his soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child that, that knows that its mother is going to take care of it, knows that it will get what it needs, it'll be fed. And he was able to pray then, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then he rose up from prayer and came to his disciples. 27 seconds to calm, quiet hope. 